When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep you don't even need to leave the house think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers each month beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world recent cases have included beer from the alps new zealand the usa ireland korea and germany so if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different beer 52's craft beer discovery club is for you and if you do change your mind you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine ferment and a tasty snack just go to beer52.com party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95 that's beer52.com party Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is David Frum, senior editor at The Atlantic and former speechwriter to George W. Bush. It was David who coined the phrase, the axis of evil, and we talk about that later in the interview, as well as what it was like to work in the White House. For W. Bush, David has a new book out called Trumpocalypse, which follows on from Trumpocracy, one of his books that you may have read. So we talk about that, but obviously this book is being released at a time when the phrase Trumpocalypse could not be more appropriate. So I began by asking him, is the Trumpocalypse we're now living through different to the one that he originally envisioned? Well, when I um, wrote the book that became Trumpocalypse, and it's the second of a two-part sequence of books. The first was called Trumpocracy and was published in 2018, and this is now out in May of 2020. Um, I anticipated um, an economic downturn in 2020 because of Trump's uh, protectionism and trade wars. Um, you could already see in the, a lot of the zest going out of the American economy in the second half of 2019. I did not anticipate a global pandemic. Very fortunately, my publisher was able to hold back the book for an extra three weeks, and that gave me time uh, to rewrite uh, the opening of the book um, and to make changes throughout the book to take on board what, it, what has happened. Um, Trumpocracy was a study of Donald Trump's methods of gaining and using power. And it was a prospective book early in his presidency. Um, Trumpocalypse is a reckoning with the consequences of that power, both for um, people in the United States and for American leadership worldwide. 
there's been so much controversy around the way that President Trump has handled specifically this pandemic, let alone anything else, from spreading conspiracy theories and suggesting that the, the virus was a hoax to suggesting people inject bleach and things like that. In terms of the way that he has exploited cultural grievances for his own end, something that he's done before, do you think he can do that successfully in the aftermath of this pandemic? Well, it depends what you mean by successfully. I mean, certainly inflaming cultural grievances has been the central strategy of uh, President Trump's response. I mean, we, we now have the mask as a culture war issue here, um, uh, which um, which is crazy. I mean, the, you know, the kinds of things we normally argue about in politics, um, you know, we're, we're all antivirus. We all don't want to get sick. Um, and we all see, uh, can read the same evidence about um, the admittedly limited but real benefits of public masking. So why is this something to argue about? But when you, um, so he's done it. He's inflamed a certain segment of American life. But when you say successfully, do you mean successfully enough to avoid uh, elect, electoral defeat in November? No, I mean, we now have 38 million Americans without work. Uh, we have had a much more dramatic collapse of the American economy than happened even in uh, 2008 and nine. There's not a single week, not a single month during the Great Depression that was as steep a collapse as the month we've seen. And there is no prospect of any um, large number of those people returning to work anytime soon. We're still losing jobs here at the end of May. We haven't even, we haven't touched bottom yet, although we hope we'll touch bottom in June. Is he able, do you think, with all that economic upheaval that's still to come, to blame China and perhaps others for this and get away with it? Um, Donald Trump has never aspired to be president of the whole of the United States. He's never even imagined it. And one of the big themes of um, the book is how he's both um, a consequence and a cause of the widening cultural gap uh, between the dynamic forward-looking parts of the country and the hinterlands. And that's not a uniquely American problem. It's very familiar to people in the UK. It's very familiar to people on the continent of Europe that um, economic activity is increasingly concentrated in these knowledge centers of the big cities, the great university towns, and the places that used to do the manufacturing find themselves uh, left behind, rural areas that find themselves left behind. So he's been able to take, take advantage of that and made it, make it a political resource. But it's, it's not enough, and it's especially not enough after this kind of debacle. Um, and so one of the things that the book uh, talks about is, uh, that Trumpocalypse talks about, is that Trump's strategy is not to um, so much win a culture war. It's to change the rules of American politics so that fewer and few, so you can govern the whole country with an ever smaller minority of its population. So his strategy isn't to try and win the center ground at all. It's to energize a base and make sure they vote. Can uh, he no, do that? It's, it's, and the third and more important part, and to prevent his opponents from voting and to ensure that votes are not counted equally. Um, let me give you, I think... Um, I think from a British point of view, how America runs these things is so odd that it's worth, we take it so much for granted over here. Um, in the United States, uniquely, politicians draw their own constituencies. Um, look, there's always some, in any system with boundaries as the UK has, there's always some politics in it. But, but um, you don't let the government of the day draw the boundaries for its own benefit. But in the United States, state government, if, if the Republicans win North Carolina, uh, and if they win it in the same year as the census, and we have them every 10 years, there was one in 2010, they can then draw the map of North Carolina blatantly to favor themselves. And while there used to be during the civil rights era, some federal supervision, but some courts 
some federal court supervision of that bounty. In 2013, the courts basically retired from the business of overseeing it. Um, so you can have a situation where in a state like Wisconsin, 45% of the votes translate into 65% of the seats. Um, that, that the Republican, um, fewer people cast a Republican ballot in the state election in Wisconsin in 2018 than cast a Democratic ballot, but the Republicans have a, a near supermajority of the Wisconsin state legislature. And you see that in area after area. Politicians control where um, voting booths are placed. Um, so I talk in Trumpocracy about a scam that happened in Indiana where um, the then governor, Mike Pence, now the vice president, pulled voting opportunities out of Democratic areas and added voting machines um, in Republican areas. If you're well-to-do in the United States, if you're a person who lives in an area where Republicans can do well, it won't take you more than five minutes to vote. If you live in a, a minority area, area heavily Democrat, you better book the afternoon. Because and that did not happen by accident. That is engineered. And Trump, so Trump's most important plan for 2020 is yes, rev up the base, yes, turn them out, but even more, um, make the American political system even more unrepresentative than it already is. I think that's what so much of the concern is around. It's not just what Donald Trump and his allies have been able to do with the system, but the fact that the system itself allows it, it exists in a way that allows him to do it. Do you think there will be structural reform to the political institutions yeah. in America following Trump? Well, uh, Trumpocalypse is divided into three main parts, and the la final and largest part of the book deals with those reforms, both to um, the way we do politics and to um, some of our social and economic institutions. And I need to stress, I, I am someone, I remain a re registered Republican. I've been involved in conservative and Republican politics all my life. And I'm someone who has a broadly conservative outlook on things. But I am also a small D Democrat and think it's a, you know the majority should govern. And if you're a conservative and you find your ideas at that moment are not appealing to majorities, you need to change your ideas. You, you shouldn't ever more explicitly say, well, in that case, uh, we'll govern with a minority. We'll change the rules so that a minority can win. That shouldn't be an acceptable option. And so those are the, in, in the second half of the book, I talk about empowering majorities and then changing conservative ideas enough so that they can appeal to majorities. We'll either be in a situation later this year or in four years' time where the Republican Party moves beyond Trump and has a different candidate yeah. um, for the White House. What do you think the legacy of Trump's leadership of the Republican Party will be? Are they likely to choose someone else like him or will there be a rejection of this period? Well, there are many um, bumps on the road that we have to anticipate. Um, I presume uh, the Republican Party will lose in November both the presidency and the Senate. Uh, I may be wrong, but that's my presumption. I have no idea whether that, that loss will be big or small. And a lot of that depends not just on the votes that are cast, but on the way that they're counted. Uh, and then there will be a battle inside the Republican world as to how to interpret what happened. Um, is it time for a rethink? Or did should you just find someone who's like Trump, but maybe less flagrantly corrupt and certainly less lazy? Uh, I think there'll be many Republicans who will be tempted to blame the whole thing on bad luck. I mean, as I said, I was assuming a Trump defeat even before the pandemic struck because of the cost of the trade wars. Um, also because of the way that different important groups in American life voted. One of Donald Trump's projects has been selling people on the idea that he had this big popular constituency behind him. And that was never 
true. In fact, Donald Trump has been the most consistently unpopular president in the history of polling. The only president never wants to get north of 50% in any reputable poll. Um, he was a, in a weak position, but he has convinced, but because his method of salesmanship is always to say, this is the best, even when it's terrible. This is the shiniest, even when it's grubby. Um, I'm popular, even when the polls say otherwise. If you say things like that enough, there are people who will agree to believe you. And enough of them believed him for him to be able to get into the White House last time. I mean, you can see a situation, or perhaps you can fear a situation where he's a tricky opponent to campaign against. He's gone up against Joe Biden. I mean, that's another question, really. Was Joe Biden the very best candidate the Democrats could have found? Um, the Democrats had a problem going into the 2020 cycle, which is the way American politics works, your candidates in, um, unless you're going with a, like a, an oddball candidate, a novelty candidate like Trump himself, um, that you, it's the people who have been winning important elections in the previous six years. Um, so you, ide you're, ideally you want to no um, nominate a reelected governor or a second term senator or somebody like that. Um, but that, there, so there's a long process of incubation. Democrats had bad elections in 2010, 2000, not a great one in 2012, and another terrible one in 2014, um, especially at the state level. So they were cut off from the flow of talent um, that you would normally expect to, to have, especially for, um, uh, for the presidential level. So it, it, those prior elections explain why the Democratic Party front bench is so elderly. Uh, but, you know, I don't think in this election, running against somebody like Donald Trump, the identity of the challenger matters very much. Um, this election, under these circumstances, is going to be a referendum on the incumbent, and it's a pretty hard incumbent to win. Uh, pretty in, hard, hard for the incumbent to win. Look, there are elections where an incumbent can make the challenge of the issue. That's what George W. Bush did to John Kerry in 2004. But the predicate for a an incumbent making the challenge of the issue is for the incumbent not to be a raving egomaniac who insists that everybody talk about him all the time. So George Bush was really happy to step back, you know, not be in, not be in the ads, not be the star of every show. And in fact, John Kerry was the star of both the Democratic ads and the Republican ads, and Bush accepted that. And 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 so he he won very narrowly, but he won. Uh, Trump won't allow it. Uh, he should keep his mouth shut. He should disappear. He can't do it. But that presents a challenge, doesn't it, to any opponent of Trump that you're always defined in opposition to someone who doesn't play by the rules. And once you get into debates and things like that, it's really hard to impose your will when your opponent is uh, Donald Trump and he's not playing by the rules. Well, I don't... He, they're not playing by the rules. From the, look, from the classic point of view of messaging, um, you're McDonald's, I'm Wendy's. Um, and you want to say McDonald's makes a, is great. It's the best. Um, what a fantastic hamburger. If, but if there's been an outbreak of food poisoning at Wendy's and a Wendy's burger has killed a hundred people, you don't need to say a whole lot about how great your product is to persuade people not to eat my product. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, uh, um, Wendy's sells. So, so the McDonald's slogan is we don't sell rancid meat. <laughs> Yes, but we live in a world where even if Wendy's was killing people, people would still queue up to eat. Some people would still want to eat Wendy's because they hate McDonald's so much. Yeah, but Donald Trump 
Donald Trump is a, a cable TV personality um, in uh, who is competing in a, in the last place on earth where we still play by network rules. Um, you know, through most of modern marketing, you can if you can get 10, 12, 14% of a market, never mind 38, 42%, you've got a business. The last place on earth where you need to get 50% market share is a US presidential election. Um, and I, I think one of the one of the things that tends to be underappreciated is, is how much Donald Trump just caught a lucky bounce in 2016. It's worth remembering, he got 46.1% of the vote in 2016. That's less than was won by Al Gore. That's less than was won by John Kerry. That's less than was won by Mitt Romney. Um, it's uh, barely more than was won by John McCain in 2008 and by Michael Dukakis in 1988, both of who, all of them, you know, so he, he's underperforming three losers and barely, barely ahead of two of the worst losers in modern political memory. Uh, but his vote, vote was distributed in a very efficient way. He benefited from um, Russian interference. They'll be back. Um, and he benefited from an opponent who, for reasons fair or foul, some to do with scandal, some to do with her gender, was not uh, able to consolidate. Remember, 54% of Americans voted for somebody other than Donald Trump to be president. Hillary Clinton only got 48 of those 54 points. Um, uh, all, if, every, if absolutely everybody who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 votes for him again, he will lose because um, the Biden vote will be more efficient than Hillary Clinton's vote. And it won't be 46% this time because we're in the middle of the greatest economic crisis since 1931. The last few years must have been so bizarre in some ways, perhaps distressing in others, to be a natural Republican unable to support a party that you served inside the White House. Yeah. Are you typical of a particular type of Republican? And what happens if the Republican Party doesn't learn this lesson and yeah. carries down on a, a Trumpian route post-Trump do you join the Democrats? Do you, does a new center-right party emerge? Well, through the first two years of the Trump presidency, 2017 and 2018, um, there was a joke that went around Washington, never Trump, it's not a political party, it's a dinner party. And then there was often an asterisk beside it, and they have dinner at David Frum's house. Um, and I have a, not a small house, but, um, you know, <laughs> uh, this book, Trumpocalypse, is dedicated to the conservatives, Republicans, and libertarians of Never Trump. And it says, as sung in an old American hymn, when all were false, I found thee true. Um, what we discovered in 2018 was, it turns out we weren't just a dinner party. Uh, Don, the de Republicans suffered one of the steepest defeats in an off-year election in American history. Where was that defeat concentrated? It was concentrated in affluent suburbs. So let's just go some, through some seats. So, uh, George H.W. Bush, the elder Bush, captures a seat in suburb, the, the richest neighborhood in Houston in 1966 for the Republican Party. And that seat remains Republican through Watergate, uh, through Iran-Contra, through the Iraq War, through the finan global financial crisis. It went Democratic in, 19, in 2018. Newt Gingrich captured in 1978, uh, uh, 76 or 78, I now forget, but he, um, a, a seat in the wealthiest suburb in the area of Atlanta. And that remained Republican, unbroken from when Newt Gingrich got it in 76 or 78 until 2018. It went Democratic in 2018. Um, 
any listeners who know the geography of Washington, D.C. will know the incredibly affluent area just south of the Potomac River, stretching from the D.C. boundary toward the CIA and the Tyson's Corner Shopping Mall. That area has been Republican for 60 of the past 66 years. It went Democratic in 2018. What was happening was a revolt of Republican-leaning women, college-educated, homeowning, um, pretty conservative on economic issues. I mean, moderate conservative. And they just said, we can't abide this guy. And so I think for a lot of us in the Republican world, why are we Republicans? We want to, um, we believe in American global leadership. And we believe in not being a bully, but in global leadership because your partners understand that America, you know, under American leadership, we can all live in a safer, freer world than we would in the days before there was American leadership. No one else can do that. We believe in free trade and free markets. And the, um, uh, we believe in... Um, managing the finances responsibly. Um, we believe that the president, you know, the thing, one of the things that makes us, we're like, people wear neckties a little bit more often than our neighbors, you know, uh, you know, uh, a little more traditional, a little bit more of a stake in the system. We believe the president shouldn't be a raving embarrassment jerk um, who belittles and insults women and the disabled and, and prisoners of war. We'd like, we'd like to look up to the president. Um, and, uh, you know, and Moton, and more of us are likely to be married and to value that institution and um, and want the president to be somebody, you know, that you can, you know, you can you can imagine it would be a good thing to take your children to the White House to, to see the president lift off in his helicopter, not some terrible episode of some grotesque Stephen King clown movie. <laughs> Where do you guys go? Do you, do you stay in the party? Because it's not like this is a traditional wing of the party debate. It's not necessarily a left and a right wing within a party. This is perhaps one of taste and one of tone. So it's not like the modernizers in the Democrats when they set up the DLC to try and win the White House with Bill Clinton. Or well, is it's it not just ta- It's not just taste and tone. Um, because, I mean, for, I'll speak now about myself. I mean, that free trade versus protection is not a trace, taste versus tone uh, issue. Um, and uh, building coalitions of allies... Um, to keep world peace and security versus trying to do- either domineer or withdraw. That's not a taste and tone. And one of the things that I think is the most consequential failure, the one, the failure of Donald Trump's that we were going to be living with for 20 years, aside from the debt, um, is I think it's hard for people of a certain age, um, and I'm nearing 60, to absorb the rise of China. So when I worked in the Bush administration almost 20 years ago, the American economy was probably about three times the size of the Chinese economy. China was an important country, but in the end, they didn't have any veto over anything. Today, if the Chinese economy is not yet the largest economy in the world, we're just a few years away from it being the largest economy in the world. It is too big to bully. You can't, if you want to constrain its bad behavior, and it does behave badly, you can't, just as Donald Trump does, issue orders and expect China to listen, it's too big. You have to build alliance structures. And that's what the Trans-Pacific Partnership was. You have to work with the European Union and Great Britain and Japan. Um, you have to work in India. You have to work with new players like Vietnam and the Philippines. And you have to take South Korea seriously as an ally, unless as in the North Atlantic in the 40s and 50s, where the United States and friends built a partnership to balance the Soviet Union. This is now an even more challenging task because Unlike the old Soviet Union, China is not only militarily competent, it's economically competent. Uh, And uh, 
for me, American leadership in world peace and security is issue one. Uh, free trade um, is issue two. It's not a taste and tone issue. I guess what I meant was there will be allies of yours to the right of you within the Republican Party who who are revulsed by Donald Trump in some way, that it's yeah. not just that it's the fact that you're to the left of Donald Trump. It's uh, on top of that, people yeah. who perhaps agree with him will also have been horrified by the way he talks about women yeah. and disabled people. And whether whether the way you wrestle the party back isn't in a traditional wing of the party way, yeah. that there has to be a, a broad coalition. And I don't know if people are trying to organize that in the way that perhaps yes, I see what you mean. the DLC well, did to modernize the Democrats. Um, American politics is very different from British politics because of the sheer scale of the United States. Um, so um, I don't think it works on a kind of left-right axis uh, the way it does uh, the way it does in the UK. I always compare American politics to it's like a game where there are dozens of marbles rolling around the floor. And the two and there are two players, each of them with a sack. And the object of the game is to scoop up as many marbles as you can and pull them into your sack. And the, whoever has more marbles in the sack wins. But there's a problem, which is many of the marbles have minds of their own and hate other marbles. And so if you pull the wrong set of marbles into, into your sack, some of them will start leaping out and bouncing around the floor and may even voluntarily of their own accord leap into your opponent's sack. Um, so uh, we remake our coalition structure every half century. Or so, and the last time we really did it was in the period between the Vietnam War and Watergate, um, when uh, a lot of areas that had historically been very um, Democrat became Republican, like the South, and a lot of areas that had been Republican, like the Pacific Northwest, became Democratic. Now we've been going through a s similar process, much more slowly, since the end of the Cold War, uh, where basically what we're watching is the movement of educated professionals out of the Republican Party and into the Democratic Party and the movement of um, deindustrialized white men out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. And something similar to that has happened in the UK. Um, and so there, there are opportunities, it's a very fluid situation. I mean, it is for sure true that the next Democratic president has the opportunity to build, um, ha will have to make an important choice. Um, uh, uh, the Democratic Party is a coalition of the center and the left. Who has the upper hand? Um, and if the center has the upper hand, that next president can build a very big and enduring coalition um, that will have strong appeal to the uh, suburbs. If the left gets the upper hand, then uh, that will open the opportunity for the Republicans. I think the memory of Donald Trump is going to be so painful for so long that there's the future of the Republican Party will be a subordinate question to the future of the Democratic Party. Um, if the next Democratic president does a good job of governing from the center, being broadly acceptable to um, moderately conservative women, um, they hold power for a long time. In Trumpocracy, you, you outline how uh, Trump could use the presidency to personally enrich himself. How effective has he been at funneling yeah. cash from the state into his own bank accounts? So what... Um, <laughs> Early in the Trump administration, I sat down with friends of mine who worked in White House counsel's office, Democratic and Re Republican, to ask them about various ways that a president could enrich himself. And I, I remember one of them, as I was outlining to one of them, some of the criminal schemes that I was thinking of, one of them said to me, 
you have a very criminal mind. <laughs> and, and I talk at the end of Trumpocracy, and uh, which was written mostly in 2017, about ways that a president could, without triggering too many alarms, enrich himself. In Trumpocalypse, I turn back to it and say, I'm actually struck at both how scummy the Trump presidency is and for what small dollars. I mean, he didn't do, I mean, I was talking about things like being um, through dummy corporations, having your children be cut into shares of Malaysian shopping malls. And, and he's just been overcharging the Secret Service, you know, picking up a dishonest $37,000 here, or a corrupt $85,000 there, picking up some millions of dollars in hotel fees. For, uh, the president of the, I mean, in a way, it's it's kind of like it's a we got lucky that he didn't he was he was a petty crook, not a big crook. So yeah, I think he made some dishonest tens of millions of dollars. Um, from the taxpayer and from Republican Party donors, because all Republican Party events now take place at a Trump hotel. And he, he got some money out of his incumbent, uh, his inauguration committee in uh, 2017. Inauguration money is some of the most invisible money in American politics. He raised more than $100 million. Nobody knows where that money went. But I would guess that his dishonest take is rather less than Michelle Obama's combined book fees and speaking fees over the past <laughs> over the past four years. I mean, it's I mean, which is a handsome fortune, but you know, not it wouldn't impress Putin. Let's put it that way. Uh, so um, he's been very dishonest, but in a way that has been quite petty. But what he has done that is more challenging is he has demonstrated the weakness of the American system of law enforcement um, to politicization. And I one of the lines that that I, t- I predicted in Trumpocracy and that has really come true in Trumpocalypse was how so I said in the first book that the main benefit of controlling a modern bureaucratic state is not the ability to persecute the innocent. That's too dangerous, but the ability to protect the guilty. And Donald Trump has been generally unsuccessful when he tried to persecute the innocent, although he's talked about it, but he's been very successful at protecting his guilty associates. And do you think that will change? Is there a mood for it to change? Um, look, the changes we really need are, are quite big changes in American government. Um, you know, in, in Great Britain, um, if you commit a crime, you'll be prosecuted by a career prosecutor who answers to a director of public prosecutions who serves for a fixed term. And the Home Secretary appoints that person. But once appointed, um, that's it until the, the fixed term is up. And then there's another director of public who rises from the ranks of, of professional prosecutors. And I'm sure there are many abuses and um, inbuilt biases. And I'm sure if you're middle class, you get treated more gently by the system than if you're not. Um, but uh, outright twisting of the law tends not to happen because that bureaucracy is is built not to do it. And if a home secretary tried to get in the way, the home secretary would find himself or herself in handcuffs. So that's not, so we, our prosecutors answer to 93 U.S. attorneys who are all patronage appointees. Now they're not supposed to behave in a political way once they get the job. And, and they're not ideal, supposedly ideological, like party patronage. You know, you've been, you've been a lot, you know, you've been a loyal soldier to the Democrat or the Republicans, this is the job you want, this is how you get it. Uh, but then once you take the oath, that's it, you're done. And historically, that has usually been how it's true, but it's a weakness. And the answer then to higher ups, who are again, again are political, uh, the assistant attorney general for the criminal division is a political appointee, the deputy attorney general, highly political, and the attorney general, of course, 
political. And they're supposed to turn off that part of their brains when dealing with the criminal law. Historically, from Watergate until Trump, they did. But pre-Watergate, they didn't. And under Trump, they didn't. And so I talk in Trumpocalypse about ways to make um, American law enforcement more professional, like um, the example of the Westminster countries, Great Britain, Australia, like in Germany. I mean, in, Ger in Germany, uh, the chancellor doesn't appoint the, their equivalent of the director of public prosecutions. But is the wider political will there for those reforms beyond the disgruntled with Trump? Um, I think there's going to be a, a moment after this election for a, a burst of reforms, like those we happen, we had after Watergate. Um, what, what we call Watergate was actually many scandals all, that all were revealed at the same time. The, the, the collapse of the Nixon presidency opened the books on a lot of things that were not very Nixon-specific scandals, CIA abuses, FBI abuses. Um, in fact, the worst of the FBI abuses had nothing to do with Nixon because Nixon and J. Edgar Hoover hated each other so much. Um, and uh, Hoover had done his worst acts, usually for Democratic presidents, but they all came out into the open. And so between 1974 and 1978, the United States embarked on a great sort of national cleanup. Um, at, at, and at the state level as well, many states you know, made their governments more honest. Uh, but government is either getting cleaner or getting dirtier in any given moment. And if you're not affirmatively cleaning it up, you're witnessing it slowly move toward the dirty. And that's been happening in the United States in the half century since Watergate. So we're due for another such moment. And some of the issues are, will be highly Trump-specific, um, others will be less so. And one of the things we really have to reckon with is the way that the votes of some Americans count for so much more than the votes of others. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What's the effect been intellectually on the Republican Party of the Trump presidency? Is this a party? It doesn't strike me that it is necessarily brimming with ideas, asking itself what the answers should be to the challenges of the next 20 years. It seems pretty basic protectionist stuff that you mentioned before. Well, there was a joke in the old uh, communist bloc that a person could be any two of the following three things, intelligent, honest, and a sincere believer in the communist system. If you're intelligent and honest, you didn't believe in the communist system. If you... <laughs> <laughs> if you believe in the communist system, you are either not intelligent or not honest. Um, in the same way, I, I think that's very true of the Trump people. I, I know intelligent pro-Trump people and I know honest pro-Trump people, um, but I don't know people who are pro-Trump and intelligent and also honest. Um, and so, uh, and what has tended to happen in the Trump world is, is that the, the crooks have tended to get the upper hand over time. So most of what has been the day-to-day -day workings of the Trump government have been people taking advantage of a weak ethical structure uh, to do scummy things. And we just a few days before you and I speak, um, there broke a story about Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, who has been in ways that are possibly illegal and certainly unethical and shockingly unprecedented, using the office of the Secretary of State to build um, a political operation to run for president 
2024 and using public money to do it. Um, and, you know, we have had all, you know, all kinds, I mean, it's just, there's all kinds of uh, petty corruption that flourishes, uh, you know, ridiculous spending, people using private aircraft, government aircraft for personal errands, that kind of thing. We've had a lot of that. But what about the, the this political curiosity of the movement? Are people thinking about the next five or 10 years or as it can sometimes appear from here, it, it, it feels like it's just an entrenched culture war rather than a, a party fizzing with ideas about how to deal with oh, things like automation and climate change. Well, the Republicans, there are Republicans who do have new ideas um, for a, you know, a, a, an American equivalent of a super Brexity uh, Tory party. Um, the, the challenge that they have, I'm thinking of people like Senator Tom Cotton of uh, Arkansas and Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, um, uh, Representative Dan Crenshaw from Texas, um, uh, who aspire uh, to repl- follow Donald Trump in his kind of ethno-nationalist cultural politics. Donald Trump's son, if, if the Trump dynasty is not too discredited, Donald Trump's son obviously has political ambitions. Um, and he's kind of an idiot, unlike the other three men I mentioned, so it'll be more difficult for him. And Mike Pompeo is, is, is eyeing all of this. But here's the problem. Republicans have built this alternative information system. Um, and uh, it's a tremendously potent device for keeping your followers in line um, and protecting them from upsetting information. But the problem is that people who run this information system sometimes forget that they made it themselves. Um, and they start, they actually, they not only create Fox News, but they actually watch it. And that's a terrible mistake because it means they, they are, they're victims of, disin, of their own disinformation. So the people who are imagining the future of the Republican Party as this ethno-nationalist party of, you know, down market white male cultural grievance, don't do the arithmetic on whether that can get you any job bigger than governor of Missouri. Um, because that's not where the country is. I, toward the end of Trumpocalypse, I compare and contrast um, the re- modern Republican map with the Republican map of 100 years ago. So Republicans had a big decade in the 2010s um, and ended up with control of something like two-thirds of the seats, uh, of the state, of, 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 of two-thirds of the state legislatures, presidency, House and Senate, all at the same time, something they have not done since before the Great Depression. But back in the 1920s, when the Republicans were so dominant, their dominance rested on mastery of the most dynamic parts of the country. So in, in, 19, in the election of 1924, landslide for Calvin Coolidge, Coolidge wins 55% of the vote in New York State, the center of American finance and American intellect and culture. He wins 65% of the vote in the um, mighty industrial state of Pennsylvania, and he wins almost 75% of the vote in the center of the new economy in the state of Michigan. That's where the automobile belt is. The Republicans, yeah, are very dominant in the 2010s, but anywhere where a song is written or a product is developed or an idea, a patent is formed, they are blanked out. They are, in, they are dead in California. They are dead in New York. Um, but they rest their mastery on um, the lopsided overrepresentation of the empty spaces. So how do you have a party of new center-right ideas which says our plan, our political plan is to rest on the votes of the people who are most alienated by an, um, the, the economy and culture of the 21st century? Who uh, All our voters, their big wish is that it be 1972 again. So how do you have a party that talks about 
2022 resting on the votes of people who want it to be 1972, especially when there just aren't enough of them. And when their wives and kids say, we want no part of this. It's so tempting to look back uh, and wonder about how Trump could have been stopped. I mean, once he gets to the primary stage, do you think it was inevitable that he was going to become the candidate or could he be, could he have been stopped by that point? I think for sure he could have been stopped. Um, And I've always thought he was a judgment on the failures of, of, I spent, this is a backstory that you may not know and certainly listeners won't know, but I I spent from the time I came out of the Bush administration for until the great recession, I spent a lot of time arguing that we needed a more modernized Republican party. And, um, you know, I was friends with people in the UK who were advocating that same thing for the conservative party. Take on board the reality of, of, of climate change and, and use market mechanisms to deal with it. Um, you know, make it um, take on board the healthcare issue, not because we're socialists, but because um, you know, right now in the United States, under the American system as it is, if you have a secure job at a good company and you have a brilliant idea to start a new company, you're going to hesitate to do it because you're going to lose your health insurance. And if you have like a so if you've got a great idea and also a disabled kid. You're going to stick with the safe choice. We want to. We should want to encourage you to say, you know what? Um, my kid gets to see the same doctor whether I s- try my new. And if, and by the way, and if my new idea fails and my company goes bust, my kid still sees the doctor. Um, you know that that is a tremendous support to innovation and entrepreneurship. And we have been seeing the American rate of job of, of entrepreneurship decline over the past twenty years. And I think the healthcare system has a lot to do with it. So I, I we need to do this stuff. Anyway. To say I had zero impact would be to give me an undeserved compliment. I had less than zero. I'd probably make things worse. Um, so we go into the we go into the Great Recession, and the Republican Party base begins to radicalize. But you and they begin you begin to hear them say things. That you begin to see this Brexity kind of politics coming up from the Republican base, and the Republican elite says, "Right, we hear you. You're saying you want less immigration, more health care, and no more Bushes." Got it. You're getting more immigration, less health care, and Jeb Bush. <laughs> okay. Well, that was a formula for trouble. And we trouble is what we got. I mean, I, I think if the if the party had been capable of responding um, in 2014, 2015 by saying it, it needs to take immigration and health care seriously and it needs to reach for a new generation of leadership, yes, I think Trump could have been stopped. Um, but he, he wasn't stopped. Um, and and then he got extremely lucky because of um, Hillary Clinton's mistakes, because of the Russians, and because of the electoral lap map and bouncing into office in 2016. You mentioned your time working for George W. Bush in the White House. What sort of boss was he? Um, he was. Uh, there's a fantastic new documentary uh, made by the American Experience, in which I play a tiny little role um, uh, that talks about this and gives you some image. Um, it was um, as a as a boss, he was a person of tremendous consideration. And um, I'll tell you one just one story. This did not happen to me, but I won't. Um, I I didn't witness it, but I heard about it within minutes of it happening. Uh, a group of people are involved in a big blunder, and they're in the Oval Office to be reamed out by the president. And that is it's never a comfortable experience to be reamed out by the boss. When the boss is the president of the United States, it's worse. And when it happens in the Oval Office, it's worse than that. It is about as humiliating and upsetting an experience as you can imagine. So um, the, the group involved in this blunder are crushed, crestfallen, and um, they are, they're exiting um, 
humiliated, beaten, determined to do better. One of the group, the person who told me the story, was the most junior person and had never experienced anything like this before. And uh, and he and it just registered in his face how upset he was. And as the group leaves, Bush shouted at him in a very harsh voice, hey, you know, so-and-so, I need you for another minute, stay back. And uh, he stays back, the door closes, and now he's alone in the Oval Office with the president. And Bush says to him, I want you to know that I know you are not responsible for that mistake. Oh, him on his way. what relief. But what a kind gesture. That Bush was capable of tremendous, and I, I mean, I could tell personal, I mean, of tremendous, he was a highly empathetic person. Look, and normally, look, and I don't make this, Bill Clinton was, you, you don't get anywhere in politics normally, unless it, it, politics selects for empathy. I mean, it may be kind of a sociopathic empathy because they, they don't care about other people. You, they, they're, they're trying to advance themselves, but the tool with which you understand advance yourself is some kind of insight into the, into the soul. And so even politicians who seem like aloof characters, like even like a Barack Obama seems like an aloof character, he's still more empathetic than, I mean, Bill Clinton is more empathetic than 100% of the people you know. <laughs> but Barack Obama is more empathetic than 92% of the people you know. <laughs> Like, unless you can do a lot of empathy work, you're not going to be in this line of business at all. Um, and Bush was not quite at the Clinton level of just almost preternatural mind reading, but he was, he, he was, uh, he had a tremendous gift for it. Um, it was not a successful presidency. Um, uh, but, um, I have this joke about it that the Bush presidency, um, opened with Pearl Harbor, ended with the great crash and had Vietnam in between, but it had great moments. And I have a sort of counterintuitive view, especially at the end of it, that the events of 2008 were among the finest hours in the history of the US government. And that's a hard case because of course it was a catastrophe, the market crash, we plunged into the steep recession. One of the biases of politics is that you never get attention and certainly not credit for terrible things that could have happened, but didn't. Um, that if, if the U.S. government, if, friendly, if we had all handled the pandemic response perfectly um, and confined it to China, and as with SARS, only a handful of people in the developed world had got sick, no one would ever have given credit to the people who prevented that, um, just even though they would have aged five years in the space of five weeks. <laughs> um, but in 2008, we saw it happen. That we saw a um, what was a very severe recession, but had the potential to become a true global depression of the 1931-33 kind, be stopped before the ultimate crash. And we did that, and this is the thing that impresses me even more, in the middle of a tra- transition of power. So one reason the Great Depression was so terrible in the United States and around the world was it coincided with the election of 32. And then there's this period from November of 32, when the election happened to March of 33, when the transition happened, when Hoover kept trying to draw Roosevelt in to put blame on Roosevelt and Roosevelt refused to be drawn in so as not to take on the blame. And the government was paralyzed and things, and and it just ends up in March of 33 is the nadir and Hitler takes power in the middle of this in January of 33. So the Bush-Obama transition is the best in American history. I mean, it's a kind of miracle of American democracy. And there's a fantastic book about it by a woman named Marie Kumar, of people working together, of you know, that, that around uh, the table through those crucial months where Bush people and Obama, the outgoing and incoming administrations, 
and in the right way, like the Obama people saying, look, you guys are in charge. We are not, you know, we're here to listen and be informed. And the Bush people saying, right, we take the responsibility, but you need to know what we're doing. And oh, by the way, we're making decisions with very short time horizons. And the classic one is, uh, so the auto industry goes bust in the fall of 2008. And there's a question, what do you do? Kill it or save it? Bush's decision was, I'm giving you enough, I'm giving them enough money to last for 90 days. So I'm not going to kill it and let my my successor inherit a dead auto industry, nor will I save it and let, and let him be stuck with the deals that I made. I'm going to give them a blood transfusion that keeps them alive till March. And then he could do what he wants. And that, that's just, that's not it was the way it was with Hoover and Roosevelt. And I think that, that was pretty admirable. So I, I think those are the, uh, those are good hours and they're a reminder of what is possible. Um, and I think it's a secret to something that a lot of more left-wing people understand, which is Obama, who had campaigned so hard against George Bush, came to office, and then he kept many of the Bush people. And they, they had had fantasies of like he was going to have a drumhead war crimes commission for Dick Cheney, and Obama didn't do any of those things, because he had learned through the transition period um, to respect the, the goodwill and integrity, even if he certainly didn't agree with the judgments of the departing administration. Bush himself was caricatured inside America and out, seen as a bit of joke by some. I mean, yeah. now Trump makes all that look yeah. <laughs> just on a different scale. Yeah. Was any of the caricature accurate? Um, Bush had. Um, uh, are you you're familiar with dyslexia? Uh, that, yeah. that which is okay. So a dyslexic person can be very intelligent, but they have a processing difficulty with ma with material inbound. They have difficulty they, when they look at a three, they see you know they see an S. They, they they have a, it's like a perceptual issue. They cannot process inbound information. So Bush had a similar problem with outbound information. Bush was a, a strong reader, and a very effective writer, but if he had to speak, he would make predict, and one of the things you had to learn when you wrote from was, was how to avoid these things that would trigger predictable um, processing problems. One of the, I think people are, he entered into the English language, the word misunderestimate. <laughs> so that, that's funny, but it's also, if you gave him a word that was multisyllabic, he would consistently insert an extra syllable into that word in a word, in a way that made the word nonsensical. Um, also, there's a logic to misunderestimate. You can kind of see what he means. You you certainly see what he means, but uh, in a way that, that you, a dyslexic, you know, but you can also, but when you see him do that 80 times, you see the nature of the processing difficulty. You give him a word, underestimate how many syllables is that, five? Um, uh, you give him a word, five syllable word, it'll become a six syllable word. So when you write for him, which you, you give him a two syllable word and it won't become a three syllable word. Um, and, and he was, I mean, he made gaffes the way everyone does and the way people who are on camera all the time uh, are caught doing. But the, many of the gaffes were very, my favorite of his gaffes was very funny, was um, he in, in one of the debates, and I forget which year, he uh, said, you know, the difference between me and my opponent is my opponent wants to argue about how we divide the pie, whereas I think we should raise the pie. <laughs> like created a lot of joke. In, in his next speech, he said, I, I'm getting a lot of blowback from my commitment to raise the pie, but... What my critics don't understand is through my life, I believe that what America needs is taller pie. <laughs> In a way, having to use smaller syllable words must have been a great discipline and also meant that he was communicating in language that more people could understand. Um, yeah, but he also was capable of 
with simple language, you can create tremendous eloquence. Um, and he was capable of it. Um, and he was his eloquence also came, and I think one of the, the best things he ever said, because it came from a true place, was in his acceptance speech in 2000. Um, he talked about his religious faith, and he talked about how he had, um, he had witnessed the power of prayer, he witnessed the power of grace, and then he said, and I witnessed the power of forgiveness because I have needed it. And we all know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> um, but it came from, uh, eloquence comes from true places. The, probably the most famous phrase you penned for him was, was the axis of evil. Is that a phrase, I mean, you must get asked about it all the time. Is it a phrase you regret? So, um, we have a few minutes. Let me, I mean, just say something, not so much about that one speech, but about Bush's language of evil. After 9-11, one of the big problems the Bush administration had was to find a word for terrorist that would not be translated into Arab, Arabic as mujahideen, freedom fighter. Mujahideen has overwhelmingly positive connotations in, um, in Arabic speech, or at least did then. Maybe it's been a little discredited now. I don't speak Arabic, so I don't know. I'm just repeating what I'm told. Um, so there, there was a search for a word. And the problem with that search was Arabic is a much more poetic language than English. So a lot of things that you would, if you start with an Arabic word, it sounded like, it sounds kind of ridiculous in English. Um, so there is apparently an Arabic word that in contrast to a mujahideen, who was a freedom fighter or a fighter in the, a fighter in the path of God, I think was what mujahideen literally means. You want a word that translates to fighter in an unlawful cause. And there is such a word in Arabic. And so they were looking for ways to back translate fighter in an unlawful cause or an ungodly cause back into English. And hence, that was the origin of Bush's use of the word evildoers over and over and over again to describe the terrorists. He was looking for a word that would not be translated back into Arabic as mujahideen. Um, and so once he, so starting with that word evildoers, which he used a lot after 9-11, we then were plugged into a language of religiosity that might sound in English excessive um, because we value in English. English was a very plain language and we value, as we were just saying a moment ago, very plain speaking. Um, but evil was our word and we were committed to it. And so we were branding things with this word over and over again, mindful of its sound in another language. Have you spoken to George W. Bush since or, or indeed recently? Uh, not recently. Um, I, uh, uh, but I, I have seen him in the ex-presidency and um, uh, my, my uh, sister, who is a Canadian, who's in Canadian politics, um, did a big event with him in Toronto about two or three years ago. So powerful, that picture of him and Hillary Clinton at the last election. I mean, do you think former Republican presidents or former Republican presidential candidates will be visible during this campaign? I, I No, and I really regret it. Um, and I think, um, to speak about another person I admire enormously, you get the sense of the power of what Mitt Romney did by the refusal of comparable people. I mean, just how difficult that has been. And um, I, I think Mitt Romney you know, has been one of the true heroes of this epic. And Trump keeps pointing out um, that Mitt Romney never got to be president. Ha, ha, ha. I say, yeah, not, neither did Daniel Webster. Uh, but who do we remember, Daniel Webster or Millard Fillmore? Uh, we, rem you know, we, rem we remember the great speaker for the union, not the mediocre president who signed the Fugitive Slave Act. David, what a great, great 
note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, there you go, David From I loved the stuff about working for George W. Bush, particularly around the genesis of that phrase and how you end up getting there. Once you've broken the language down and you're trying to avoid things that can be translated, you can totally understand how you end up with a phrase like that. And I think he was right. To those of us over in the United Kingdom, it perhaps felt more inappropriate than it, than it did uh, over in the United States. And David seems so confident that Trump isn't going to get re-elected. That's so reassuring. Um, but after last time, of course, you, you almost don't dare hope because it was such a surprise that he won in the first place. But um, you can buy Trumpocracy and the new book, Trumpocalypse. I've put the link to those uh, in the show notes so that you can, if you're in the United States, you can buy Trumpocalypse now. If you're in the UK, you can pre-order it. Um, you can also email the show, politicalparty at gmail.com. I almost had a total blank out then. Political party podcast actually at gmail.com. What see, that's why it's important to use really clear language. David had a point. Political party podcast at gmail.com if you'd like to email the show. And thank you to so many of you who've left uh, wonderful iTunes reviews. It just helps other people find the show. So I, I do appreciate it. I hope you're managing to stay sane and happy and well. And I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.